Hello and welcome to our quarterly podcast. I'm Helen Watson, CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined today by Global Investment Strategist Victor Balfour and co-head of Portfolio Management Hugo Capelcure. As usual, we sit down at the end of the quarter to discuss the last three months of sort of macro market and, uh, importantly, portfolio activity. So, Victor, continues to be a tough year. You know, rising interest rates and war uh, continues to sort of impact both bond and equity markets. So can you just run us through the major developments from the uh, from the quarter? In terms of, I guess, how markets have fared, I mean, it's obviously we saw a very brutal first half of the year. And it's been another challenging quarter uh, to capital markets. Um, stocks, bonds, commodities, these were all down uh, anywhere between 4 uh, and 5% um, over the last three months. And as a result, when we're looking at the kind of returns on, on a year-to-date basis, stocks are down about a fifth in local currency terms uh, and bonds are down about 13% or so. Now, naturally, there is quite a disparity when you delve into the, some of the underlying numbers. But most striking has been the big sell-off that we've seen in bond markets and the kind of sharp upward move that we've seen in some of those bond yields. You know, owners of longer dated bonds and particularly have experienced a great deal of pain over the past three months, uh, and even indeed on a year-to-date basis. But particularly, you know, for the owners of UK government bonds, you know, the 10-year government bond was down 14% this quarter. Um, that's the worst Amazing, return. Yeah. yeah, it's the worst return we've seen going back, you know, four decades mm-hmm. or so. Um, and in the commodity space, you know, we've seen, you know, incredibly volatile you know, few months as well for energy prices, you know, natural gas prices, they more than doubled before halving. Oil prices, they've, they've continued to slide, they're down about a fifth. And remarkably, gold, despite its, you know, supposed inflation uh, hedging uh, characteristics, um, it fell a further 8% uh, in this quarter. And of course, the only thing that seems to be bucking all of these downward moves um, was the dollar, uh, which rose about 6% um, over the last three months or so. So very, um, you know, very few places to make money, mm-hmm. really. Um, how have the portfolios fared, Hugo? So as usual, these numbers are for the balanced portfolios and their new core fund equivalents. So for sterling portfolios, they were down around 4% for the quarter, which now takes them uh, to 13 14% down for the year. Uh, for dollar and euro portfolios, they were down around 6% and 5% respectively for the quarter which uh, takes them down um, 18 and 15.5% for the year. And again, I mean, the, the differences in performance continue to be driven mainly by currency movements. And as Victor noted, the dollar has been strong across the board uh, with the euro and sterling coming under pressure. So can you talk us through what the main drivers have been, i.e. really how the return assets have fed and then also how the diversifiers have performed? So the main contributor to the losses have been the return assets, in other words, the uh, stocks. And as Victor said, global stocks have lost about a fifth of their value this year in local currency terms. The stocks held in portfolios have performed around 3% worse for the quarter and 7% for the year to to a date than the broader market. And that's really for two uh, major reasons. First reason is, We've seen some dramatic pullbacks in the value of some of the long-term winners in portfolios. So companies like Mastercard, Moody's, S&P, the cable stocks uh, like Charter and Cable One. This looks to us more like profit-taking and valuations adjusting to higher interest rates uh, than any major um, deterioration in, in fundamentals. The other reason um, is that we have very little exposure to energy and consumer staples, um, which have been the sectors 
with the strongest relative performance. In the case of energy stocks, we tend to avoid exposure to companies where the main share price driver is commodity prices. And really, we feel that we can get exposure to these commodities on a more systematic basis via the trend followers. And for the consumer staples, such as the Unilevers and Nestle's of the world, we sold these a few years ago as they look expensive to us with dull growth prospects. Uh, investors, however, are sheltering in them for their defensive qualities, and so they're holding up better than other stocks. So stocks have been weak, though I emphasize again that it appears to us to be driven more by investor positioning than major changes to how these companies are performing at an operating level. And on the other side of the portfolio, the diversifying assets have been very helpful. So this is definitely the year to own things like trend followers rather than conventional bonds. And overall, the diversifiers have added 2.5% to portfolios this year. This also means that the diversifiers are now producing a small positive return over the last decade, which is very encouraging given the big hedging benefits that they brought to portfolios. And the final balancing item to mention again is, is a currency. So sterling euro portfolios receiving a 4.5% and 2.5% currency tailwind from the strong dollar. And for dollar portfolios, non-dollar exposures have been a 1.5% headwind. Um, Victor, you talked about the market returns. I mean, what's your take on the sort of macro geopolitical backdrop that we see today? So I think at the, the very headline level, in terms of the kind of economic picture, it's still one of sticky inflation, slowing growth. And of course, this has led to uh, the prospect of, I guess, even more aggressive uh, tightening from some of the major central banks. On the geopolitical front, I mean, I think the outlook is arguably more, even more uncertain than it was. We're seeing old and new risks emerging. I mean, even with Ukraine's advances, you know, Russia's stepping up its rhetoric. So I think, sadly, we have to assume that the kind of war of attrition continues there for now. Um, and of course, here we've seen elections in Europe, which has brought forth a, a new right-wing uh, Italian coalition. Uh, and then, of course, in the UK, the arrival of an even more dysfunctional um, government. I guess, I guess it still feels as though we're adding bricks to that kind of growing wall of worry at the moment. That said, I think, you know, in terms of the kind of growth story, I, we see it as slowing, but not necessarily collapsing. Um, there's certainly a regional tilt in terms of the kind of activity momentum. You know, Europe, most exposed to the energy crisis, that faces a cyclical slowing. In contrast, the US appears uh, to be uh, on a stronger footing following you know, the contraction we saw um, in the first half of the year. And I think importantly, you know, one of the, the big points of strength here is that the consumer, the kind of key driver of growth, isn't yet that fragile. You know, we're still seeing wages expanding in nominal terms. Balance sheets are still pretty liquid and healthy. Plenty of excess savings. Um, waiting to be deployed. So I think until we start to see you know, cracks in the labour market, you know, growth really can and, and should for now continue. Of course, in terms of the kind of inflation picture, where we are, we are starting to see a little bit of a divergence starting to emerge. You know, the euro rose to double digits for the first time ever uh, as a block as a whole. Whilst in the US, we've seen the kind of headline rate that's been now falling um, for two months or so. It's still elevated, a little over 8%, uh, but it has been moving lower. Uh, and the UK... Um, actually did start to dip very modestly in the latest month, but it's still um, still very elevated, a little under 10%. I think what's clear is that the energy story and the policy response to it is now playing quite a pivotal role in shaping some of these, these inflation numbers. You know, governments in Europe, obviously here in the UK as well, have, have introduced policies to you know, shield consumers, 
protect businesses from the kind of surge we've seen in, in natural gas prices. And of course, these policies will you know, mute the hit to, to wider spending, but that also temper the pathway for inflation ahead. And so, you know, at some stage, and I know we have been saying this for a while now, those peak rates will subside more decisively. And indeed, bond markets have already, have already started to signal this a little bit. We've seen inflation expectations retreat in the US and, and Europe. But we are mindful, of, of course, that underlying inflation pressures, you know, beyond energy and food are still creeping higher. And this is part of our reason for thinking that you know, some underlying inflation risk will persist longer term. And of course, you know, this point is, is, is clearly shaping very much policy at the moment. You know, rhetoric and expectations have turned much more hawkish during this quarter. Federal Reserve, for example, raised its interest rate by one and a half percentage points in the quarter. Its policy rate now three to three and a quarter percent. And the latest projections suggest we could see you know, the Fed funds rate at four and a half percent sometime next year. In Europe, they've now ended um, eight years of negative interest rates. Um, they've hiked uh, to 0.75% over the quarter. It's the highest we've seen in a decade. But perhaps least decisive of all was the Bank of England, um, which did tighten policy by, by less than expected. Um, the base rates at two and a quarter percent. But looking ahead, you know, markets are discounting you know, base rates to be more than double that um, a year out from now, close to over five and a half percent. They're not necessarily a fallible guide to short-term interest rates, but certainly the bank appears um, increasingly behind the curve. So the Bank of England is behind the curve. I think you used the word dysfunctional about the new UK government. Difficult to not talk about it. I think it's fair to say that the sort of first moves that we've seen were clearly not taken well by the market. Mm. What's your take? Where to begin? Without I mean, being political yes, better. of course. Um, I mean, the UK has, of course, faced something of a crisis of confidence. There's been a bit of a, as you mentioned, a revolt against UK assets more broadly. Um, to sort of give you some, some anecdotes here, sterling touched an all-time low against the dollar, uh, briefly hitting 103. Uh, and we saw the long end of the gilt market, those longer dated bonds, uh, fall by about a quarter. Uh, and of course, the, the combination of these things has seen, you know, some commentators label the UK uh, some sort of emerging market. I think from our side, there's no doubt that the UK government has made a few, more than a few unforced errors uh, in the last month or so. You know, reckless and provocative budget, followed by an embarrassing climb down on you know, that divisive tax cut for higher earners. That said, I think if we're being objective about this, you know, the scale of the unfunded spending was pretty unremarkable. There is a sort of view that the media, deep-seated group think, you know, the incoherence with the Bank of England, which of course is I mentioned has been somewhat hesitant to, to raise interest rates, are all likely playing a part in shaping this, this kind of overly negative view of the UK um, at the moment. Of course, there are other sort of technical factors at play. We saw turbulence within the gilt market, um, which forced the Bank of England to intervene, you know, buying longer dated bonds for a short period once again. This has seemed to stabilise the market, at least for now, uh, given the snapback we've seen in gilt yields. But hopefully this should reduce the risk of kind of systemic risks emerging in, in the pension sector. For us, as, as we see it, you know, from our perspective, we're not really worried about the UK finances or credit worthiness. The UK has more, more than enough fiscal headroom and more so than many of its European peers, nor does it face a you know, balance of payments crisis. You know, this is where the, the emerging market analogy really is a, is a bit of a sloppy one. The UK can borrow its own currency and even its winding current account deficit is, as we see it, a manageable one. You mentioned the currency piece. You know, maybe we focus on that for a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of turbulence in currency markets. Um, you said that cable touched 103. Mm. Where, where are we now? 
So uh, what I would say is I think it's not so much the currency volatility that is striking, but as you allude, though, rather the levels which are attracting probably more attention. So you know, the UK has clearly been one of the weaker currencies of late, as you, as you mentioned, that touched 103 back in September. It has actually since rebounded by nearly 10%. And I think one of the, the important things to note about all of this is that the dominant theme this year really has been all around dollar strength. You know, the euro has been weak as well. That briefly fell against, uh, it's actually through parity at the moment against the dollar. Uh, and if we look at the kind of dollar spot index, which is a sort of basket against the basket of currencies, um, it's on track for the strongest year in four decades, up about 18% this year. You know, and I think as a consequence of all these FX movements, you know, we know that terms of trade have been impacted. You know, most non-US international businesses have benefited from that translation effect of a stronger dollar. Equally, you know, as you will be aware, from a portfolio standpoint, you know, global investors whose base currency is outside of the US will also have benefited. So a sterling-based investor owning US assets, for example. Of course, where hedging has been in place, this has obviously limited uh, any potential upside from that dollar strength. What I would say is, is the way we're seeing it is that valuation-wise, the dollar is clearly expensive, sterling is cheap, but anticipating a reversal in you know, these trends is, is challenging. You know, sentiment, not just growth and you know, interest rate differentials, that will play a huge part in shaping currency movements. And this is one of the reasons that we feel trading currencies is not a sustainable source uh, of investment return. You know, the short-term movements are unpredictable, and valuations, even if we think there is upside for sterling, um, certainly in the, in the short term, are a poor guide to kind of likely fair value. So given those sorts of moves, Hugo, I think it's really important that we talk through how we're managing the currency exposures in, in, the, in our clients' portfolios. Yes, so the, I mean, the way we manage portfolios is to build them bottom-up. So we select the most attractive stocks and funds that we can find. We then assess the risk on a top-down basis, in other words, at portfolio level, and check that it's consistent with our clients' tolerances. So our key risk measure, and it has been for many years, is how a portfolio might perform in a major market correction, similar to the global financial crisis of you know, roughly 15 years ago. And one of our key concepts here is to make sure that the majority of portfolio risk is aligned with where we expect to generate the majority of returns. This means that we want most of the risk to come from the equity positions. And as Victor has just said, over the long term, currencies tend to be something of a zero-sum game. And we certainly don't see currency trading as a viable source of return. So our sterling, dollar, euro portfolios all have an element of currency hedging. So for the sterling and euro portfolios, this means that some of the dollar exposure that derives from having a large part of the equity exposure in, in US and global equities is hedged back into sterling and euros respectively. With 2022 being such a strong year for the dollar against pretty much every other currency globally, these hedges have had an opportunity cost. In other words, having dollar exposure in these portfolios has been a benefit this year, but if we hadn't had the hedges in place, benefit would have been even greater. Over longer term time horizons, we don't expect currencies to have a major impact on the total returns that the portfolios uh, generate. So Hugo, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that the economic backdrop shifted substantially since pre-pandemic. Um, inflation's reared its head, you know, we sort of talk about the fact that anyone under 40 hasn't experienced that, but um, some of us are a bit older. Interest rates are rising. Um, Victor's reminded us that geopolitics is fragile at best. 
Um, and, you know, that's not just abroad, that's also, you know, here at home as well. So can you just talk through how we've been changing the portfolios to address that? Yes, I mean, we've been, we've absolutely been aware of the shifting landscape since the pandemic hit, and we've been steadily changing the shape of the portfolio. So to recap, I mean, the pandemic hit in the first quarter of 2020, markets immediately fell as governments moved to shut down economies around the world. We then had that massive response from governments to try and offset the economic damage. So it was monetary in terms of more money printing and fiscal in terms of a massive spending spree. Now, we never know for sure what is behind market moves, but we feel it's reasonable to assume that these policies might have caused the rebound in stock markets. They also left us wondering what all of the stimulus might mean for inflation. So the first big change over the last two years has been to steadily reduce equities and portfolios as markets went higher. So this entailed taking some 12% out of equities since the summer of 2020. And the other big change was to really think about whether inflation would finally rear its head. And as you say, you know, for many people, you know, haven't even seen inflation. And, and this is why we created the Inflation Focus Fund. Uh, we bought the break-even inflation ETFs, uh, the inflation option, and topped up the trend followers. And the final thing was to try to find substitutes for the type of portfolio protection, the insurance, uh, that we've been buying in the run-up to the pandemic, things like equity put options. So these have become a lot more expensive, but we have found some interesting funds, such as the Sabah uh, Long Short Credit Fund and the One River Dynamic Convexity Fund. But, but it remains an ongoing quest, uh, really. So, we've looked sort of looked back here. If we look forward um, from a sort of top-down perspective, is your view shifting? So, I think when it comes to stock markets, uh, not dramatically. I mean, valuation-wise, you know, we look at our, our key metrics, we're probably close to fair value. You know, long-term inflation-beating returns are, are looking, you know, even more convincing now. Uh, given the retrenchment we've seen in equity markets. However, I mean, I think as we kind of discussed today, sentiment is clearly still quite fragile out there for obvious reasons. And I think, although we believe that growth really should continue and inflation will eventually subside to kind of above target range, in the short term, we know that higher costs, higher interest rates can also hurt profitability. And certainly we're looking at things like forward earnings. They may not have yet discounted all of the, the bad news, if you like. That said, where we are starting to kind of shift our view is within bond markets, uh, where I think value has you know, is finally starting to emerge after a very long time out in the cold. Um, you know, conventional nominal 10-year bond yields, kind of benchmark bond yields, uh, are close to 4% in both the US and the UK. You know, those longer dated yields are now looking closer to offering something that resembles a, a positive real return. We haven't seen that for a very long period. Um, so we're starting to take advantage of this yield pickup and we're advocating adding duration on portfolios, albeit um, gradually. I'm sort of tempted to say not all doom and gloom, but, um, <laughs> it, you know, Hugo, one of the things that I ask, typically ask you is what you're getting excited about, which when we've just talked through all the things we've talked through, it feels um, hard to be excited about things. Having said that, you know, I know um, from return asset side of the portfolio, a lot of the um, shares that we own in the portfolio have come back quite a lot. You know, what kind of value are you seeing 
and and how do you think you might take advantage of that? Yes, well, the the market reaction this year has been you know pretty indiscriminate, and I certainly acknowledge that they're the macro and political risk that Victor has highlighted. However, I mean, it really feels like the selling has happened at an index or market level, with very little attention paid to whether the underlying companies are doing well or badly. I mean, given the amount of money that now invests passively through things like ETFs mm. or accesses the market you know, via futures and options, I mean, perhaps this shouldn't be a surprise. So in some cases, it looks to us like the proverbial baby is very much being thrown out with the bathwater. Hugo, can you give us some examples of, the, uh, of that? So, so one would be Ryanair. Um, it's having its best year operationally that I can remember. I mean, its planes are full, 96% load factors uh, last month. They haven't cancelled flights, unlike their competitors. They've taken a lot of market share. And fares now appear to be rising with costs well under control. They're even getting some positive newspaper headlines, which is frankly a first. If I only knew that information in isolation, I would expect the shares to be performing very well. As it is, the shares have done much, much better than EasyJet or IAG or Wiz, but they were still down 7% for the quarter and 31% for the year. Another example is Eurofins, the lab testing business. So operationally, they're on track. They continue to build their business lab by lab and test by test. Recent re uh, results were bang in line with our expectations. However, the shares have halved over the past year, and it, it, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to us. You know, we're even speculating that one of their major shareholders may have had to meet investor redemptions in their funds. But this does mean that our projections for forward returns have increased um, a lot. We've added to the position in the last few weeks, and the company itself um, has announced that they're buying back stock, uh, which we approve of, you know, particularly uh, as it was something that we suggested to them in the first place. So, so when we look across the stocks held in the portfolio, I know that um, you know, the team would argue that they've got a range of attractive characteristics compared to the sort of broader markets. Can you just run us through what those attractive characteristics are? Well, the first one, I mean, given the, the discussion about inflation, I mean, they are well positioned to pass through inflation. So, for example, I mean, if the price of goods or services, for that matter, um, have gone up, I mean, if, if you pay the bill on a MasterCard, well, that just means more revenue for them. Um, another thing is that the companies uh, in, in portfolios, they're running with modest uh, amounts of, uh, of a leverage, on average, half of that of the S&P 500. So they should be in a very Sorry, good... Sorry, so the leverage is half that of the S&P 500. Absolutely. So there's, there's less balance sheet mm -hmm. gearing, and less, less amounts of, of a debt. So that means that they should be well positioned to weather higher interest rates. Uh, the companies make margins and returns on equity that are higher than the, than the broader market, uh, like, like the S&P index. And they're growing their businesses faster. So... You know, when we look at the companies, they have underlying growth in the low teens against the high single digits for the S&P or for the consumer stocks, as I mentioned, the Unilevers and Nestle's. And the final point is that you're getting all of this for a market multiple very much 
in line with the S&P. So around 16, 16 and a half times earnings, according to our estimates. So you're paying market levels of earnings for what we believe are better, is better earnings power as we look forward. Yes, and yeah. less and less leverage as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the stocks. Um, what about the diversifiers? Yes, so, I mean, again, I mean, we see opportunities there. And, um, you know, we're in an adjustment period um, with inflation uh, and interest rate rises causing these, these, these shifts in the markets. Almost by definition, this gives rise to trends. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more strong performance coming from the trend followers. And the other diversifying funds look well positioned to me as well. So we could easily see stress in credit markets providing opportunities for a fund like a SABA. Um, and the final thing, and you know, Victor's already hinted at this, is that we're seeing value you know, re-emerging in bond markets for the first time in, in essentially a, a, a decade. Bond markets have been a desert, but that is changing, and we're just beginning to see a better balance of risk and reward. So I, I would say that my excitement level has increased a, a lot. I mean, I've, I've certainly talked about what I'm excited about rather more than the usual, but that's because the opportunities are proliferating. So good companies are on sale, uh, and it feels like market inefficiency has increased. Um, prices really seem to be being set at the macro rather than the micro oh. level. Well, I hope your excitement is justified, Hugo. Thank you everyone for listening to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, we do always try and touch on the topics which you may be concerned or interested in. Um, and please do remember that you can always send uh, questions through to your client advisors and they will also be happy to discuss anything that we've talked about in further detail. Our podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So if you wish to receive them as soon as they're released, or listen to some of our other podcasts, please subscribe on our channel to either of those platforms. Uh, thank you again for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.